Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we're going to discuss the recent turmoil in Poland and Hungary regarding their ban on Ukrainian grain imports. And then we'll turn to Greece media freedom, which is roiling the Mediterranean country ahead of its elections on May 21st this year. After that, we had a great conversation with Ilke Toyur, our very own non-resident senior associate with the CSIS Europe, Russia and Eurasia program and professor at the University Carlos III of Madrid. Ilka joined us from Madrid to preview Turkey's upcoming parliamentary and presidential elections just three weeks out from voting day. The general election and first round of the presidential elections will be held on May 14th, and there will be a potential second round on May 28th. We hope you enjoy the show. So let's start, Max, with this green deal with Ukraine. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. What are the concerns in Hungary, Poland and Slovakia? Well, I think this is a super interesting issue, and I think it demonstrates the larger point here of the challenges that Ukraine will face with becoming a member of the European Union, because here, its sort of staunchest ally in Europe, Poland, had uh, unilaterally adopted a ban on grain from Ukraine coming through Poland. And this was also done by other uh, Eastern European countries, Hungary, which is sort of no surprise, but also Slovakia. And the issue is that Ukraine is an agricultural powerhouse. There's been a lot of talk about trying to get Ukrainian grain out through the Black Sea. The, this is the, the grain deal that was done between Ukraine and Russia that was brokered by Turkey, because that's the way Ukrainian grain used to get to market, which is through a sea-based transport, which is more economical, which means that it, Ukrainian grain then goes all over the world. But Uh, Ukrainian grain has been restricted uh, while some is getting out through seaports. Uh, a lot of it has to now travel by land. And what that means is that Ukrainian grain is entering the EU, entering countries like Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and they have their own agricultural sectors in these countries that are now having to compete with uh, cheaper, high quality Ukrainian grain. And this is leading to a lot of Polish farmers to get upset. And what is the base of the current Polish government of PIS, which is a populist government, well, a lot of you know farmers and agriculture. And hence, there's an election that is coming up in Poland in October. And so they unilaterally stopped Ukrainian grain from entering the European Union. The problem is the EU says, wait a second, you can't do that. You can't unilaterally stop uh, the EU from trading with another country because guess what? That is the domain of Brussels, of the European Union. So the EU has now stepped in and, and tried to figure out a way that Ukrainian grain can still go through these countries, maybe without being stopped and offloaded, but then can get through these countries to ports so it can get to the broader global market. Essentially, this was kind of a real shock, I think, to, to Ukraine, to Kyiv, you know, given their relationship with Poland. The Poles have tried to sort of play this down of like, no, this is about maintaining our support to Ukraine, i.e. we have to maintain our public support and backing for the war, which is all well and good, but it does raise a lot of questions. That's an interesting official stance from Poland, that the, the real goal here is to maintain domestic support, which I could see being true to some extent. I'm sure there are electoral considerations in the mix as well. But it's interesting how it doesn't really jive with how Poland has been forward leaning on the military support to Ukraine. And it shows that as we're starting to look at what it would look like to support Ukrainian reconstruction, this is going to be an area where 
European countries need to align. And right. A lot of economic support is going to come through this. Well, it also shows the kind of superficial nature of a lot of the conversations that are happening around in Europe and, and elsewhere around uh, EU enlargement, which you have real advocates of EU enlargement in countries like Poland and the Baltic states saying Ukraine membership now. And I you know, don't sort of disagree with that. On the other hand, yes, it's like, have you thought about means. the common agricultural policy, which if you're going to let in a country like Ukraine with 45 million people and one of the largest agricultural sectors probably in Europe, what does that mean for the money doled out to French farmers, to Polish farmers, to Hungarian farmers? There's a pot of money and it is split between these agricultural countries. That pot will now have to be, will be significantly diminished for many of these countries. This is the point that Ukraine membership for the EU should happen. But what needs to be happening and which we're not seeing are discussions on the EU level about how to reform the EU so that it can fit Ukraine in. And what Eastern European countries don't really remember because they weren't part of the European Union is that the 90s were about treaty reform, about reforming the EU so that Eastern European countries, so you could do this big bang enlargement of letting countries in and that the EU could still function when it got to more than 20 members. Well, Ukraine membership also means potential Western Balkan membership. So we're getting to over 30 countries. There's going to have to be a lot of changes that the Eastern European countries are really reticent to talk about and actually don't want to talk about. And I think what we're exposing is the hollowness right now of that position, that if you're serious about Ukraine membership in the EU, well, you got to start talking about some of these really thorny issues. This is going to be a challenge and everyone's sort of been operating as if it's nope, that you could just let them in as if it were a multilateral club. It's not. It's a union. And that's going to be, I think we're seeing rather tricky. Yeah, but that's the same conversation we've been having on accession as a whole, right? You mentioned the Western Balkans. Same, same idea there when we talk about Moldova getting candidate status. Same thing. Great. I'm all for the big announcement, but there are very serious implications yeah. to doing something like this. And speaking of which, I mean, this is a good segue to Greece. Greece is having elections. There's this, you know, huge spy scandal and questions over, over media freedom uh, in the EU as well. Maybe let's start with kind of the the top line and talk about some of the, the media freedom issues and, and surveillance scandals that are happening in Europe. Yeah, I think it's important to set the stage here with the fact that this spyware problem is just one piece of the deterioration that we've seen in media freedom in Greece over the last few years. And it's also important to say that it's not just the current conservative government of new democracy, the party. This has deeper roots, longer roots, especially since the financial crisis uh, in Greece, well, across Europe, really, which in part, the media at that time, mainstream media, was really demonized as part of the elite that broke the economic system in Greece. And the other part of that was it just killed profit for independent media, which was relying on things like advertising for its functioning. So then it had to rely more on government intervention. The left-wing government in 2015, Syriza, tried to do certain things, licensing broadcasters. It didn't work that well. So it continued this problem for the media environment in Greece. And then the new democracy government came in, I believe, in 2019. And that's when we saw furthering of this decline in terms of non-transparent allocation of advertising funds, state funds, um, pressure on some publications when it seemed like there was going to be a critical line against the government. And the government has pushed back very strongly against all these allegations, except the reality is like in 2021, a journalist was murdered and his, his murder remains unsolved. In 2022, Greece was ranked lowest in EU countries by Reporters Without Borders in its its annual ranking. 
public trust in news is very low. So this is just to retrace the the arc uh, that that got us here. But really, those allegations of spying on journalists, on opposition members in the parliament are very, very serious. And the reason why it's important on, on this side of the Atlantic to care, this is an EU member, this is a NATO member. It's very close to the security flashpoint of Europe right now. It has a geostrategic location in Europe. And this administration, this U.S. administration, has really tried to do a big push on democratic values. And some parts of the EU institutions have tried as well. So this is this is a stain on their record so far. The use of, of spyware technology, it's one of those things that a lot of intelligence services see this technology. There's country like Israel that develops this technology, then wants to sell it, countries buy it, and then but don't quite have the protections in place. We've seen that ourselves with new technology in our system in terms of, you know, that sort of getting out of hand and starting to vacuum up data and information from domestic users that uh, were clear violation of the law and not something that's supposed to happen. So this this big scandal in Greece, there's also, I saw reports today or that just came through that Greece may have authorized the export of this technology also to Sudan and in other countries. And it raises questions about the ability of European countries to control sensitive national security technology. Maybe how is this playing out politically? Greece has just started its election season. Um, and this, this seems to have really... Um, uh, been an anchor on their popularity. It has been at the same time. <laughs> I think some of the issue is the the main opposition party, Syriza. People's memory is fairly long, and it, they were in part in in power not that long ago. And I think as much as there was hope coming out of the financial crisis that a left leaning party would do better or would do something different to get Greece out of the crisis, their record wasn't that positive. So you're dealing with it's kind of both. The devil you know, the other devil you also know, right? The new democracy, I think that doesn't help them at all. At the same time, people look around and they see the opposition is not that attractive a, an option. So I'm not, I'm not really sure so far we're seeing a huge blow. Things keep coming out, though, in the press. So I'll be curious to see how that continues to impact the rankings, uh, the polls until May 21st. At the EU level, though, that's a serious blow to this government's legitimacy, I would say, because new democracy came into power saying we're going to do things better. We're going to clean up what happened after Syriza and we're going to get Greece and its institutions back to where they were before. And they've done that to some extent on other aspects of policy. But this is this is a huge problem for a government that is really trying to be a solid partner on the EU stage, but also with the United States. I don't think that's that's very positive for them. Also, because they've they've taken I mentioned this earlier, they've taken a very confrontational stance when it comes to those allegations, whereas they could have just recognized things like export licenses to countries like Sudan. I don't think that helps their legitimacy either, to be honest. One of the things that's just been interesting for, for me that stood out about this is that the European Public Prosecutor's Office, which is a relatively new role, is investigating this. And it kind of shows, you know, when you start merging EU countries together and you start creating, starting to have a common legal system and framework, you need to start having an ability to prosecute that at a European level. It'll be interesting to see how 
how this plays out. I mean, I think though, maybe just backing up on Greece for a second, because it's obviously had a very difficult past decade. It's had a, essentially an economic depression, yet it's sort of come out from that. And one other aspect is that it's been a real partner when it comes to uh, the war in Ukraine, where there were with with Syriza concerns of its ties to Russia. It ended up, I you know, actually playing a very I think positive role or productive role, and but particularly in this this government. We've seen a lot of U.S. equipment sort of tra- traverse through Greece on its way to Ukraine. So there's, you know, I think this will be an important election that that uh, many many folks are going to be watching, especially around the world, to see how the kind of spyware scandals that we're seeing not just erupt in Greece but but elsewhere play out. Sure. Also because the two top parties, left and right leaning, are tied in the polls. My understanding is there was a change in the system, and now it's more based on a proportional system, which means there's a potential for the Socialist Party and Syriza, which is further left, to form a coalition if they can get to that. Whereas we don't necessarily see the same kind of alignment for new democracy and getting a lot of parties lining up behind that. So it does have potential implications for Prime Minister Mitsotakis's longevity as as Prime Minister. Um, but I... I do also want to flag, uh, you mentioned the European Public Prosecutor's Office, which I think is has done amazing things around Europe, even though it's fairly recent, it's not a huge staff. It's also the rule of law report that Europe, uh, that the European Union publishes for all of its country, countries. The one from last year was not particularly positive when it comes to Greece uh, for journalism in particular, but some other aspects of rule of law. So there's a lot of things that need to happen. The European Parliament is looking at those issues as well. So as much as there are concerns, there's also a lot of actors on the European stage that are trying to make moves. Uh, Commissioner Jourova is making a push on media freedom and concentration, trying to limit some of this as well. So the election itself will have a big impact, but I think there's a lot of movement happening at the EU that uh, is potentially positive. And this kind of scandal is a shock to the system, similar to Qatargate, which we mentioned a couple months ago. This is a shock to the system that forces uh, EU institutions to really get into gear. Yeah, there had been a number of high-profile murders of journalists in Slovakia and, and Malta, and and I think you know it's, it's sort of a reminder that media freedom is something that you have to constantly be vigilant about, particularly as organ if you know media is investigating organized crime or corrupt politicians and other things like that, which is literally their job of the fourth estate and what you want them to do, then puts them oftentimes in 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 the literal line of fire. And so it's good that the EU is is starting to take this more seriously and really put steps in, into place. Well, we'll be watching what happens in Greece closely, but before those elections, another Eastern Med country will head to the polls, also facing its own difficulties with democratic values, to say the least, and that's Turkey. We are thrilled to have our very own non-resident senior associate with the CSIS Europe, Russia and Eurasia program and professor at the University Carlos III of Madrid, Ilke Toygur on the Europhile to preview Turkey's upcoming election. Ilka is an expert on European politics, specifically European integration, EU institutions, elections and democracy in Western Europe, geopolitics of Europe, transatlantic relations, and Turkey's relations with the West. She also serves as a board member on Trans-European Policy Studies Association, or TEPSA, in Brussels, and advises European governments and EU institutions on contemporary challenges facing Europe. Ilka, welcome to the Europhile. Thank you very much. So why don't we start with setting the stage? 
So can you briefly outline for us the key players and the key issues in this election? How strong is Erdogan's position three weeks out? Actually, this is going to be a bit long because Turkey is going to parliamentary and presidential elections. So bear with me while I'm trying to explain all the actors there. On the one side, there is uh, Turkey's veteran politician Recep Tayyip Erdogan's People's Alliance. That includes his Conservative Justice and Development Party, also known as AKP, and ultra-nationalist action party MHP. The alliance is also joined by a number of smaller, mostly far-right parties for this election. So we can say that uh, Erdogan's alliance is even uh, even more Islamist and, and, and nationalist than, than, than before. Then on the other side of the, the, the table, we have the six-party opposition bloc called Nations Alliance, but also Table of Six uh, for, as a simplification. And that alliance is led by the Social Democratic Republican People's Party, CHP leader Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. And he is the one who is also challenging Erdogan in the presidential race. His alliance is a rather diverse alliance. So the opposition alliance is also rather diverse. In addition to his social democrats, it's joined by the only major fraction, the center-right Good Party, which is called in Turkish E-Party, and centrist Progress Party, Democrat Party, the Conservative Future Party, and the Islamist Felicity Party. So as you can see, it is rather a um, diverse coalition of six, not an ideological alliance, but what they call themselves is an alliance of change. When we come to the presidential race, and I will be concluding with that a bit, we have two more candidates in Turkey today, the centrist Muharrem Ince and the right-wing candidate Sinan Oğan. They don't have the chance of winning the, the, the presidency as far as the polls stand right now, but they may become the reason why the presidential election goes to the second round. And there will be another round on the 28th of May. And when it comes to the parliamentary elections, we have a third electoral bloc that's called Labour and Freedom Alliance. And that is led by the Pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, HDP, and accompanied by other left-wing parties. And this alliance backs Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu for the presidential race. Maybe you could break down what the current state of the race is, mainly to start with the presidential, because that's where everyone is focused on. Will Erdogan, you know, continue on? You know, he's been in power since, uh, what is it, 2003? It depends on when you want to start the counting. But it's been 20 years, and so whether his reign will continue. So what what is the likelihood that uh, Erdogan is sort of still in place if we were having this conversation this time next year? Well, according to the polls, the opposition for the presidential race, mostly united behind Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, has a very fair chance of winning. There are various reasons for that. Also because, as you have said, no, 20 years after Erdogan, and when you look at the situation in Turkey right now, it is not in an ideal point. We can discuss that economy-wise, politically, democracy, alliances. There are so many dimensions that require analysis. 20 years after Erdogan. But also his popularity got hit very significantly after the, the earthquakes, devastating earthquakes in Turkey in February 2023 and its aftermath. If there were free and fair elections in Turkey, and that's a very big if, we can come to that as well. According to the, the recent poll of polls done by Euronews, Erdogan's People's Alliance is set to gain around 40%. 
Nation Alliance is 38%, but also Labour and Freedom Alliance is 11%. And in five out of six polls, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu is getting the, the, the torch in the presidential palace. So this is the situation up to the polls, and, and this is the situation on the ground. But he's unlikely, it seems, or it, it'll be a nail-biter to see whether he'll get the 50% right now, according to polls, uh, needed in the first round of voting. So it may go to a second round. Is that is that right? Yeah, exactly. It looks like um, there is still a slight possibility that the opposition leader can get to the 50% in the first round, the opposition leader. But as I said, like the two new participants of the presidential race, they don't have a very high voting rate, but they are complicating the picture. So there is a possibility of going to the second round after all. Let me ask you, the coalition that has formed in support of the opposition candidate to oppose Erdogan, we've seen something similar when it comes to elections in Hungary, uh, previous elections in Israel to, to topple Benjamin Netanyahu, that there's real opposition unity against uh, the, the leader that's been in power for a long time. We saw that sort of fizzle out in Hungary, where it was sort of a, a cross-ideological uh, alliance, uh, and there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm in the end for the candidate. But here, what is sort of unifying the opposition isn't simply that they want Erdogan out, but that they also want political reform and a move to a parliamentary system. So they're seeing the toppling of Erdogan and the removal of Erdogan, that this will be a shift to a new political system. Maybe you could talk a little bit, up, a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. I think this is a very important point because this alliance is not just an opposition alliance that was established in this election. This is an alliance that already competed in, in previous elections and managed to get Istanbul and Ankara back from AKP in local elections previously and Istanbul twice, if you remember the repetition of the elections there. And even if it's a really diverse alliance, the key messages is change. And the change in two very crucial dimensions that are important for Turkish citizens. One is economy, very much related to the cost of living crisis, because in Turkey, the situation is really bad. There are unorthodox monetary policies, skyrocketing inflation, uh, central bank reserves are really gone for the government's desire to keep Turkish lira uh, afloat. So there is a very important issue of uh, economy and, and the daily life of citizens. And the opposition bloc promises that they are going to regulate this and they are going to solve this problem. And on the other hand, there is the issue of democracy, rule of law, basic rights and freedoms. Turkey is extremely polarized, like many other countries, including the one we are recording this uh, podcast. But also this polarization is really threatening the well-being of citizens and peace and security in the country. So one of the main messages of the opposition that is valid for this election, but also for beyond, for a new Turkey or a different Turkey, is that they will create a living environment with democracy, rule of law, equal rights and freedoms for the citizens. And while doing so, they will also try to bring Turkey in line with Western democracies, which has been a, a, a long-term, a hundred years old uh, motto of Turkey's founder, Kemal Atatürk, actually. This is kind of the, the opposition's change discourse is shaped by these two streams, cost of living crisis, economy, you will get to live better, 
and on the other hand, democracy, rule of law, basic rights and freedoms. So I'm curious, and I think it's important also for us sitting here in Washington to understand better what Turkish voters care about between those two strands. I think it's important for the opposition to focus on both, but what do you think resonates more? Because obviously we focus a lot for our work and just generally because of Turkey's place in NATO, its geographic position on the democratic backsliding. But do you think voters care as much about this as they do about cost of living, the economy, etc.? I think we just we really need to understand what matters most to the electorate. Well, I would say, of course, in in any electorate and every electorate, cost of living crisis matters more. If there is really high inflation, if everything is more expensive, every time you go to the supermarket and and you don't know how to meet the ends at every month. So, So I would say that that's important. I also personally believe that the other side of the coin is also important, not because of the rhetorical importance of democracy and rule of law as as we tend to think, but the existing political environment is really making people's ordinary lives difficult. Everyone is scared. You cannot necessarily trust the law. You don't know what will happen if you have a problem in your daily life. Like, this is not a, at conceptual level. No, it's like it's daily level problems for citizens that are that really affects their lives. So I, I assume that even if they care more about the cost of living crisis, the democracy dimension, living together dimension, and equal rights for, for all the citizens uh, is are, are very important in a country as diverse as Turkey right now. I think that's such an important point that you made about This is not a rhetorical or theoretical debate. It has very real implications in the lives of everyday citizens. I feel like the backlash to the response to the earthquakes earlier this year, which was absolutely tragic, is tens of thousands of deaths. It belongs in this category as well. Nobody can control natural disaster. There is no debate about this. But the response to it and the fact that it was heightened by elements of corruption within the government, local and national, I think plays into that role. I have two connected questions on the earthquakes. Is one, how much do you think that impacts the election and for voters? And the other one is, how much do you think that impacts the ability to conduct the election on the ground where those earthquakes happen primarily? Actually, you have touched uh, to a very, very important point, Donatine. We didn't mention so much until now, and that's the, 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 the lack of strong institutions. So in addition to the dimensions that we have discussed related to democracy, rule of law and basic rights and freedoms, there is also a very important problem of personalization of policymaking in Turkey since the, the transition to presidential system in the country and the weakening of institutions. Since we mostly work on foreign policy, we work mostly on the weakening of the foreign affairs ministry. Clearly, I, ha- I don't know how many times I have said that in, in, in previous work. But what we have seen in the earthquakes in Turkey was that it is actually all the institutions that were weakened. Because a natural disaster is a natural disaster. But what you do afterwards is very much a demonstration of your state capacity. And the incumbent government and Turkey's state capacity has basically failed the examination period after the earthquakes. So I I certainly think that this has an important impact on, on, on the voting behavior of the citizens and their perception of the state, of the government, 
of the leadership. If I come to the second part of your question, on the other hand, about the elections, how it will take place, etc., there are many questions about that. Because there are thousands of people that are displaced after the earthquake. I personally am not so sure if everyone was able to re-register in other areas. Uh, some data show that they managed because of the, the schooling of their kids, etc. But this is not necessarily 100%. So we don't actually know if all the citizens that were affected by the earthquakes in Turkey will be able to vote. And there are different reportings about like the uh, deciding not to use Hatay's airport, for example, the, the, the city which was at the epicenter of the earthquake uh, until after the elections, which makes it even more difficult for the citizens that would make the efforts to go back and vote in their original districts. I doubt if they would have done that anyway, because I assume that they have other... Uh, economic and other kind of problems right now after the after the devastating earthquakes but there are definitely issues making us wonder if all the citizens uh, democratic will be reflected on the ballot box that day maybe just one final question about the earthquake a major earthquake uh, in turkey was one of the the uh, vehicles for which erdogan came to power there was some talk after this latest earthquake this year that this might strengthen him by you know rallying the country around a national response but but that's not what's happened right that's not what you're seeing that the uh, the, uh, because, the, you know, the stories that have come out about the kind of uh, corruption of a lot of the uh, building codes and construction related industries that then sort of are kind of tied to 20 years of governance where corruption is sort of becoming more endemic. But essentially, this is sort of blown back on, on, on Erdogan politically. Yeah, this analysis is rather complicated because, as you rightfully said, Max, uh, the literature shows us that disasters create some kind of rallying around the incumbent government because people are rather looking for stability and, and recovering with the existing resources. But in this case, the government is clearly responsible of everything good and everything bad in the country after 20 years of governance. You know, it's like whatever the electorate is considering good, it's thanks to them. Whatever they are considering bad, it's also thanks to them. So I think there is a really direct uh, attribution of responsibility. But on the other hand, I think they still want to capitalize on that because what we have seen in, in, in earthquake regions also like super rapid introduction of construction projects. So they really immediately started to reconstruct people's houses trying to show that, okay, maybe we are responsible, maybe you attribute responsibility to us, but we are also the only people that could remake what has happened here. Since the opposition is rather divided and unexperienced after 20 years of uh, AKP government, they have been playing out that, okay, we got this, we will make this right. So we will see what kind of voting behavior will come out of that. I think it's not a 100% rallying around, but also not a 100% of dismissing entirely and attributing uh, responsibility entirely and, and voting away. 
One, I think, major concern that I think many democracy watchers have is the potential for for fraud, especially you have a government that's been in power for two decades that is operating more like a strongman authoritarian government oftentimes than a liberal democracy. What are the concerns right now about potential fraud when it comes to the election or or, or potential rigging of, of, of votes? The opposition, at least when they have come through town, seem quite confident that the election will be at least fair, if not free. Uh, what is your take on the potential for uh, for this election to be seen as both not free and not fair? Okay, I think we need to divide and conquer here, because when it comes to the fairness, I think it is really clear, also documented by international organizations, that there is no level playing field in Turkey's elections. There is no independent judiciary, no independent media, state resources are used in favor of the government, electoral laws are changed in every election, redistricting is a common practice. This is not what I am saying. This is what international reports are saying about Turkey's elections. And we should note that the mayor of Istanbul also, who was going to be a lead potential candidate for the uh, to, to lead the opposition bloc, charges were brought against him and therefore was seen as not, not a good candidate to, to bring forward. Very correct. Uh, Also, as a common practice, political opponents are banned by means of questionable legal charges. The the Istanbul mayor is the the, the most striking example for some, but this has been a common practice when it comes to to HDP mayors, HDP politicians and and, and parliamentarians in the past, including their previous co-leader. He's right now in, in, in jail, so he has been out of politics because of that. The fairness is, I think undisputed in, in, in this case, they, they, there is no level playing field. Freeness, on the other hand, so what you cast in the electoral day will come out as you have cast, tend to be claimed as such. So especially Turkey analysts from Turkey keep on claiming that the Turkey's elections are free because of the 100 years old democratic culture and because of the citizens given importance to elections and democracy. And this was well proven again in the local elections in Istanbul. In this case, there are different discussions because since we all know that in competitive authoritarian regimes, the incumbent governments are not necessarily very much willing to go, they will try to, according to the literature, they will try to do things at least in their power to at least a couple of points play around the, the, the results. This is opening a really gray zone and it's making it very difficult for the Westerners both to understand and to react in case of it happens. Because Turkey, with its democratic culture, is a country that we would assume there will be no demonstrable uh, electoral fraud. If that happens, there should be a very strong reaction from the Western allies stating that this is not how we do business in, in Western alliances. So it's, it's, it's a complicated question, hard to answer. And there are varying opinions in this, but it's definitely a point uh, where the Western leaders should be very happy, very ready. Transatlantic alliance should be very ready to react in case it happens. Let me just ask one quick follow-up. So do you think the public reaction would be of the sorts that we have seen, you know, in Ukraine in 2013 and 14, uh, also with the previous Orange Revolution in Ukraine, or we recently saw in Israel where, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets. Uh, Do you think we would see something like that if there was sort of belief that there was electoral fraud uh, on behalf of the Erdogan government? 
I assume that if there is documented electoral fraud and no disputes about that, yes, the opposition political parties would, would rather organize the public to, to take on the streets because this is really decisive election for Turkey and, and I assume that they will do their best to, 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 to protect their ballot boxes and protect their, their election results at the end of the day. So maybe we can move, I think those things are connected, but move from the domestic element to the international space. Some observers, like we've, we've talked a lot in recent weeks about Turkey's opposition to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. They dropped the opposition for Finland, as we all know. But some observers have noted that this combative stance is connected for Erdogan uh, to the domestic sphere he's trying to show a hard line on the international plane, even though it's with NATO allies. Do you agree with that observation? Do you think he's taking on that stance to make up for a potential legitimacy gap at home? And what could be the reason for him just holding so, being so uh, firm, especially when it comes to Sweden? Yeah, actually, this is a question that we we have asked ourselves for a really long time as, as people working on Turkey. If you bear with me, I can give you a rather also complex answer on this, because I think using foreign policy to boost domestic uh, popularity has been a long strategy of Erdogan. This has, in my mind, at least two streams once again. On the one side, there's this idea of challenging the West and appearing as a strong statesman, outfacing the, the, the biggest leaders in the world, NATO leaders, EU leaders, and boosting popularity. And this, I think, not letting uh, Sweden and until very recently Finland go ahead with their NATO membership is, is, is on this line. And the other part of the, the, the stream is mostly what we have seen since the, the, the end of 2020s, repairing relations with the, the Arab states like United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia, mostly for investment because Erdogan has secured various rounds of cash injections from these countries. But we can also put relations with Russia in this group. So there is this idea of regional leadership, regional important role, and also diversifying alliances and not just being a NATO ally and that's it. So there are two streams in understanding Erdogan's foreign policy and, and its uh, attitude towards the, the, the Western alliance. Clearly, uh, the, the issue of NATO has created lots of disappointments. And this is uh, also a trend that was also started by, we can give just the most important examples, no? S-400s, the Russian air defense systems, a Russian-made nuclear central, Aku central in, in, in Turkey, uh, the, the balancing act following up the war, not after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, People can understand why Turkey is not aligning with the Western sanctions because of the dire situation in, in its own economy. But there are many discussions in the United States and Europe why Turkey would help Russia avoid Western sanctions. And, and all goes adds up in this idea of diversifying alliances and playing its own autonomous foreign policy and not necessarily aligning with the, the West all the time. Ilka, this has been a really enlightening conversation. I want to maybe look forward now. What would an opposition victory mean? What are the kind of implications for the EU, for NATO, for Turkish democracy? But also, 
what would an Erdogan victory mean? What does that mean for the future of Turkey? Is everything just going to be the way it, it's been? Or is he running on trying to move Turkey in a new direction? What? So there, there's two paths in front of us. Maybe you could outline both the way you see Turkey going in both an opposition victory scenario and an Erdogan uh, victory scenario. In an opposition victory scenario, I think... Um Again, I'm, I'm full of tracks, but I'm going to explain in this in two tracks because the opposition has a strategy for improving its relations with the West, again, in two tracks. On the one side, they are claiming that they are going to go back to democracy, rule of law and political reforms at home and starting with symbolic cases, releasing political prisoners and re-establishing credible monetary policy. So they assume that even... After doing these reforms, there will be more sympathy towards Turkey. There will be a better intention of improving relations and, and things are going to start getting on track with when it comes to the relations with the West. But on the other hand, when you look at their foreign policy claims, they also want to actively reseek Turkey's Western vocation. And I think this is, this is, this is a rather important intent. Of course, we need to see if there is political change, if there is democratic transition of power, and if there is a more or less stable coalition government. And as you can see, they're all very big ifs in, at this point in time. But assuming that all happens, I think they are really getting ready uh, with good names in mind to get over Turkey's Western vocation again. And what we are hearing in, in, in Ankara right now is that social democrats will claim the, the Ministry of Justice interior and foreign affairs. So there will be a social democratic core there, all led by Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, and all these dimensions that I have been mentioning will rather work in harmony. This doesn't mean that everything, all the problems that Turkey has with the Western alliance will disappear. This def definitely is not the case. And we can have another uh, Europhile on what would be if that happens. But what is more important for me is three promises here. One, reclaiming Turkey's Western vocation. As, as a promise, it is very powerful. Second, re-institutionalization of policymaking in general, foreign policymaking in particular. So giving back to power, foreign affairs ministry had back to, to itself. Thirdly, the desire to align better with European and American allies. So decreasing the tone of aggressiveness, unilateralism, and the strategic autonomy search that we have been witnessing in, in, in Turkish foreign policy. So if all the promises are being kept at the end of the day, there might be an opportunity to improve things between Turkey and the United States, NATO, and the EU. Yeah, I mean, that would seem promising for Sweden, a membership for EU-NATO relations in improving, things like that as well. Definitely. I, I think this sounds promising for, for all the open fronts that Turkey has. But I should maybe uh, mention this also in a minute. So if we have also the European decision makers listening to us, they should know that this is going to be like a um, ping pong game. You know, it's like... Turkey will start keeping its promises if there is a new opposition government, but then also will expect a certain move or certain moves from the other side. And when they come, then Turkey will move a bit further. And they will also like keep on showing to Turkish citizens, which are they are very skeptical with the West right now, I should underline that, a democratic Turkey belongs to the West. 
And this will be a process of healing, a dialogue and confidence building. So this is not going to be easy. Let me underline that so we are not full of butterflies and rainbows here. Well, uh, I wish the audience could see your hand gestures sort of uh, play a, a ping pong game uh, on the video, which is <laughs> which is really illustrative. But m maybe to close us out then on what does Erdogan victory mean? Well, for me, Erdogan's victory is going to be more of continuation with momentary decisions and gestures, because in my personal opinion, there are no reasons for Erdogan to change course, neither in domestic policy or in foreign policy, except the situation of the economy. So the, the situation of the economy will, will continue to be dire, even more dire, because right now they are holding it everywhere, including the Turkish uh, lira, the currency. So there will be a need to secure more funds in the aftermath of the election. And as you know, the EU is the biggest foreign direct investor of Turkey. It has been historically that. That could be one, one point where a certain rapprochement could be, could be expected. I know that the Westerners are, are generally trusting Erdogan's pragmatism. They assume that he will change courses when necessary. But I personally think that the overall stance of the government will remain the same. And the, 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 the founding principles of the, the, the current government is that West is in decline, Turkey as a middle power should invest in its defense, in, defense industry, look for its strategic autonomy, align with the Western allies when necessary, but look for other partners when required, and do things individually ad hoc and a transactional manner with the EU and the US when the situation arises. So for me, another Erdogan victory in Turkey is 100 years anniversary, because this is Turkey's centennial this year, is just going to be victory and a continuation of the, the, the stances the government had inside and outside of the country. Let's see what happens. Well, Ilka, I want to thank you so much. I mean, I think Erdogan victory, I think relations between the West and Turkey will probably get pretty rocky. I think the NATO has been playing nice over Sweden. The US yeah. and EU have, have not th sort of thrown the book at Turkey for sanctions evasion yet. I think a lot of that will, will come. But we shall see. And I think it's going to be a really interesting election. We will be certain to have you back to talk about the implications of whatever happens on the election days that are, are, are coming ahead. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for enlightening us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Pleasure is mine. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. You can also find Ilka's latest piece on EU-US cooperation on Turkey ahead of the elections published with the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, linked in the episode description. Our thanks to producer Michael Kohler, as always, and to Sissy Martinez and Aldo Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. This really could not happen without them. So we'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.